Welcome everyone to episode 66, New Parkinson's Therapy. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm surviving, Kiki, although it's it's a struggle. You know, this is the uh, NIH grant season. I got a couple floating in there for the deadline, and then I have a state-sponsored one, so I'm three deep on the grants. Yeah, you're a bit busy then, huh? I'm way behind, <laughs> too. I got a lot to catch up on, not to mention, you know, I had such a good winter. You got a kid. The winter is like, the, it's the worst because it's all, everyone's sick all the time, blah, blah, blah. And we had a really good winter, but so, for some reason we got hit hard in the spring to the point between the grants and the kids being sick with one thing after another. I don't know if I'm sick myself, tired, hungry. I've got this whole morass of, of not good things going on in my body <laughs> and it's not helping my grants, that's for sure. When it's all done, you're just going to go to bed, sleep it off. Yeah. Well, everybody will sleep it off. You'll be okay. I'm going to shut it down for sure. You can make it through. Just live off of the cold medicine and caffeine and <laughs> <laughs> make it happen. You can do this. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's going to be a struggle. I'll get through, Kiki. It won't interfere with my duties as a podcaster. That's for sure. I got science to talk about, and I'm going to show up. All right. I think everyone here is showing up. We're ready to do this. I'm ready to have a good show. There is a lot of great stuff ahead. Let's get down. Yeah. Okay, everybody, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released. It's going to contain all the links to the papers we discuss as well as a detailed show summary. You know this is going to make your life easier, so you should do it. And then there's signing up for our stem cell forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cell called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on the social medias. We are at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen, our show is going to be so wonderful today. Our guest for episode 66 is Dr. Su-Chun Zhang, who we have invited on the show to discuss his work on stem cells and Parkinson's disease. And he's doing some fascinating stuff. Let's just say mind control. <laughs> no. <laughs> but right now, let's round it up. You ready for that? All right, Kiki, let's go. Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tocris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I'm ready to round it up, but you should start. <laughs> All right, I will start it up. There is some crazy stuff happening out in the world. The last couple of weeks have been filled with some fun things. Like, did you know there was a group of 150 scientists and government officials, media, some, some media people, but nobody was allowed to talk about this. They all met to discuss creating a synthetic human genome. Oh, boy. 
Right. So there are synthetic biologists who are noodling around with, you know, the Lego-like aspects of our genome. You know, let's put this with that and let's print it out of a printer and let's make our own bacteria and all that kind of stuff. But now a group of scientists are contemplating the fabrication of the genome. So they'd use chemicals to manufacture all the DNA contained in human chromosomes. So this is all still in the idea phase. It involves efforts to improve DNA synthesis generally. But the problem here is that it was a closed door meeting. And so all the attendees were, they're told not to contact the news. They weren't allowed to post on Twitter during during the media. And it was silence to the public. But then, you know, there's going to be a paper coming out about this. And George Church came out and said, well, you know, we couldn't invite the media because this paper was under embargo. And so we were afraid of breaking embargo. And, you know, you can't do that with a powerful journal. And so now it's raising questions of, you know, well, should the journal really have that kind of power over something that people should have input on? Yeah, that should be in the public domain. I mean, come on. And if the first thing you want to, you want to freak people out, have a closed door meeting on making humans from scratch and then say, we can't talk about it. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. This isn't really at this moment. Like I said, it's the idea phase. It's like, okay, could you build a human genome from scratch? From there, you know, there are these ethical issues. Would you change traits in the genome that could then be genetically passed on to the next generation? I mean, we've already had a meeting about CRISPR earlier this year mm. that scientists decided that, well, no, we can't do that. That's not a good idea to change the germ cells. You know, but then it's the, are people going to be bred to be soldiers? You know, are we going to make copies of certain people? Like, you know, will we go back and rebuild Einstein's genome? Ethical questions that are very far off, but. I think maybe they should start with like a, I mean, I know they, they're getting into the bacteria and whatnot, but why don't they start with like a, a fruit fly or something? Why are they talking already about making a human? If they could make right. a roach. I would be pretty impressed. I don't think they got to jump right to the humans. I mean, that's a lot of controversy wrapped up in that. It's a lot of controversy and it's a lot of genetic information. I mean, the it took 13 years to complete the Human Genome Project. They say this is the logical next step because it'll give us more information about how the genome works. It'll help us understand folding of the genome. It'll help us understand expression of the genes and how things all fit together. But you know, the genome is so large, we don't even know if it would be possible. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, whether or not we should do it, obviously, that's one question. But whether or not we can do it, I think that's still a big question. I mean, I can mm -hmm. read, but I couldn't write a book. There's a lot of things that I can appreciate and understand yeah. without being able to create. And I mean, we're talking about eons and eons of evolution here. I don't think we're going to be able to, to just put everything together, right? So quickly, so rapidly. I think it's premature, Kiki. I do too. And uh, But this kind of premature discussion maybe should be open to the public. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Maybe it's time to talk about it so we know what we're doing when, when we're finally capable of doing it in about 5,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that we are capable of doing in the more near term is maybe getting rid of wrinkles. Ah, oh, yes. Are you tired of those baggy eye bags that, you know, oh, especially show up, you know, I'm, when you're yeah, working on your NIH grants? <laughs> yes, it's disgusting. Don't look at me. 
No, so uh, researchers at Harvard and MIT have created a compound. It's based on siloxanes, which are oh. an atom of oxygen linked to two atoms of silicon. They're polymers. They're uh, pretty safe. You know, they're really not too reactive. And anyway, the researchers published in Nature Materials that they've done pilot studies with 170 subjects in which they've basically used it as a second skin. And so it's a, a two-part process where they have a, a liquid polymer that you paint onto the skin, and the chains in the polymer aren't really strong in this first layer. And then they have a second step of applying a linking product, which binds everything together. And so in the modification of the chemistry of the chains, you enable it to either allow the skin to become more permeable, so maybe to hold more water and to plump up and to get rid of those wrinkles, or maybe the polymer could hold a medication, or maybe it could hold sunscreen. So this is the kind of thing that you paint it on, and then it doesn't just rinse off because it's this polymer that has basically bound to your skin but it is changing the properties of the skin in such a way that it could potentially be used in a kind of makeup cosmetic manner. But then the next step is to uh, figure out how it could work in a medicative kind of way for things like eczema, psoriasis, and various skin conditions. Mm. I was going to say, I mean, when I think MIT and Harvard and science, I thought they're like, aren't they supposed to be curing cancer or something? Meanwhile, I saw, this has made a lot of no, uh, rounds in the in the news media. Did you see this picture of this, this lady with the one eye was not and the other eye had? She was a fox. Right. She, it was like she went back in time. Yeah, there's a video that's available as well. And so you watch it actually happen. They paint it on the two layers in real time. And it, nothing really happens with the first layer. And then they, they paint on the second layer and it's like, blurp. Where'd the wrinkles go? This guy, Rob Langer, he's about a billion patents. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's notable because another story that I heard about him, one of his science innovations, where he had this thing where it, it was essentially hair straightener. So he like it, it encased each strand of hair in like plastic yeah. so that you would straighten your hair once encased in this plastic and never have to straighten it again. So add that to this story and I realized that what drives innovation at Harvard and MIT is not really medical science, but vanity. Vanity. <laughs> well, I don't know. What was it, the 1950s? The future is plastics, yeah. it seems to be. So moving on from the vanity angle, how about uh, something that's a little bit closer to home and not as fun? researcher named Samira Asghari. She's a computational biologist at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, has reported at the Biology of Genomes conference on her research looking at protein coding DNA of healthy toddlers and babies who ended up on respirators because of colds or respiratory syncytial virus. And so there's this issue where seemingly healthy toddlers end up in the intensive care unit. And nobody knows why. It happens to about 1 in 1,000 kids around the ages of 2 or 3 years old. And their body doesn't respond to viruses in the same way as the majority of other children. And this is the first study that's shown that there is a, a gene variant, a mutation that's involved in this. And so they're 
examination of this of the protein coding DNA found that eight of the kids in their sample of 120 kids had one of three rare variants in a gene that's called the IFIH1 gene. And the IFIH1 gene is a gene that encodes a cytoplasmic viral RNA receptor that activates the type 1 interferon signaling response. And that helps to regulate the cellular immune response and, you know, kick viral booty. So the mutation affects this protein's ability. It makes it shorter. And so the protein is not able to detect viral double-stranded RNA. Some viruses create this double-stranded RNA. Our bodies detect it and then fight it off. But if kids have this mutation, that doesn't happen. They don't detect the RNA in the first place, and the virus-fighting defenses don't turn on. And so the viruses replicate much better than normal, and then it leads to the kids having a terribly hard time combating this first-time viral infection that they don't have any other acquired immune responses for. So if the child survives, then of course the immune system is going to be able to fight it off the next time the kid is infected. But that's the question. With these mutations, how do we help these kids survive? So now that we know there's a mutation, that helps us get work in that direction. Yeah, that's important. These genome-wide association studies are telling us a lot about these fluke-type cases. It's, it's really important to anticipate what's going on with these patients so we can preclude any of these life-threatening complications. Yeah. It's about stuff that happens to kids. It's like, yeah, okay, adults, particular. whatever. No. <laughs> <laughs> and especially after, you, you know, you have kids as well, but it's like, once you have a child, it's like all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, things that happen to children. Yeah. Not a kid in a hospital, there's nothing, nothing sadder than that. Yes. Because they're so happy. You know, they're just being, I mean, they're not happy, but they're being kids. Like they don't, that's all they know. So it, just, it breaks your heart. Yeah. So let's work. Uh, stuff like this is going to help keep kids out of the hospital. So figure it out. There's uh, eye bags and second skin, and then there's this type of research. Both important. Don't get me wrong. Both important. <laughs> like, yeah, for very different reasons. Yes. All right. So moving on from these various issues, how about news of Australia putting herpes into its rivers? <laughs> Why on earth? Herpes. Herpes. I can't wait to hear about this, Kiki. Yeah, herpes is a, is a disease that humans are never happy to contract, but it's a disease that affects the different vi variants of it affect many different species around the world. And it's actually something that we've been evolving with for hundreds to thousands, if not millions of years. So herpes is something that is widespread. However, we've found that there are certain strains, one particular called the ciprinid herpes virus, or CYHV3, or carp herpes virus, specifically targets carp. And Australia has a problem with carp. Carp have gotten into their rivers, they're mucking up the water, they're eating too much stuff, they're just destroying the river ecosystems. And so, Australia, who has used other viral biocontrol methods in the past to some degree of success, they've had success controlling rabbits, and they've also had success controlling cats historically. So they're like, let's try again. And now, in a campaign dubbed Carpageddon. That's clever. Yeah, this is the governmental national carp control plan. They're going to spend 15 million Australian dollars to spread this ciprinid herpes virus through carp-ridden 
waterways. I think they got to work on their PR there. Because when I hear Carpageddon, I picture like (laughs) an army of carp from space destroying the earth. But this is really Armageddon for the carp. Am I right? Yes, destroying the carp. And pretty much like within the first year, they're expected or it's expected that the herpes virus is just going to be spread rapidly from carp to carp to carp. All the carp have to do is bump into each other and it spreads under the crowded river system conditions. They expect by 2045 that with this virus, 95% of the carp in the Murray-Darlington River system are going to be eradicated by the virus. Within the first year, a huge percentage are going to be affected. Like the first year is going to be the big one and then it'll balance out throughout the, the population in the rivers. But they say in the process, there are going to be just dead fish in the water. So part of the plan has to be a cleanup program. P.U. <laughs> yeah, lots of dead fish just showing up. I'm hoping that they'll also have a please don't fish for carp warning in this river system. <laughs> I like the sets. By 2045, 95% will be dead. And the other 5% are never going to get laid again, let's be honest, because they've got herpes. <laughs> so that's pretty much in one shot. We're done. Carp again. <laughs> because they've got herpes. Leave me alone. <laughs> Carp again. Biocontrol stuff like this is always uh, very, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's a complicated system and there are a lot of considerations that need to be taken into account. Australia has, like I said, done stuff like this before. So they're not taking this lightly. They're not just throwing this virus out into the wild and then, ex- you know, just expecting it to work. They do have a fairly good idea of how it's going to change because it will evolve some within the system they're throwing it into. They, they know. think they, they know. They think. Yeah. But I'm worried about, I mean, they say it doesn't affect humans, but when you've got something swimming around in a huge population, isn't there a ch- Didn't we worry about that with like bird flu and stuff? But what about jumping species? No, I guess they, they know that that's not a problem, I guess. I hope. I don't want carp herpes. It's pretty gross. That's part of it. I mean, they've been working on this for several years. There are papers going back related to this particular Carpageddon program and looking specifically at this carp herpes virus going back several years. So this is not like they're like, hey, carp herpes virus, let's throw it in there. You know, <laughs> they have actually been studying this for several years. All right. Well, we'll see. But I'm we'll glad see. it's I'm glad it's on the other side of the earth. Yeah, it's not here. <laughs> but here in the U.S., solar energy is hitting a huge milestone. Woohoo! Yeah. Within February of this year, 2016, it's estimated that about 1 million American homes have solar panels. 1 million American homes. And that's big because it's been growing very, very slowly or it started growing very slowly, but it's started to increase exponentially over the past decade. And the solar industry, the reason this is starting to grow more and more is that the cost is going down and it's becoming much more economically feasible for people to consider for their roofs. In 2006, it cost about $9 per watt of power generated by solar panels, and now it's $3.79 a watt. It's estimated uh, in an article in Tech Insider, a CEO of a company called Energy Sage, that's a, a marketplace for potential solar customers. He says that up to 6 million Americans are actively shopping for solar today, and more than 300,000 of them are going to end up installing solar panels this year. So the numbers are going up and up and up. Vikram Agrawal, the CEO, says people love solar. 
There's very little not to like about it. No noise, no emissions, out of sight, produces electricity, it's beautiful, and it makes financial sense. Hmm. And the best thing about this is that he says the trend is accelerating, and based on the number of customers who are interested in solar, if his company can make solar shopping as easy and as transparent as shopping for hotels or cars, I have no doubt we would be doing five, ten times the volume that we're doing today. And the way his company works is that it allows solar customers, people who want to potentially get solar panels on their roofs, they make an account, tell the company what their bill costs for energy, about how much energy they use, and how much they want generated from solar, how big their roof is, how many panels they want. And then solar installers submit bids. And so the customers can then decide on which solar installing company they want to go with. So it's a marketplace that allows choice and good competition, healthy competition between the solar installing companies. Wow, that's, I mean, it's impressive because I can remember when I was young, a lot of science about solar and thinking that's never going to happen. It's too expensive or it's impractical or whatever. And I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm impressed that the pace that it's taken and how it's really become a viable alternative to fossil fuels. It's really amazing, although we certainly have a long way to go. But it's, a, it's an example, I'd say, of something that maybe was hyped and people thought it was all hype, but actually turned out to be the truth. And uh, that's a good segue, actually. Are, are you done with your roundup? I'm yeah. going to get into my roundup. I am all done. Seg away. <laughs> Speak seg away. Speaking of uh, the hype, on that note, I think it's, it's important. I've been thinking about this a long time as someone who works in stem cell research. about you got to really be careful about the claims you make. So this has been formally addressed now in a new paper published Thursday in science, a team of authors says it's time for everyone, and I mean everyone, from the media, press officers, to the journal editors and publishers, even to the scientists, perhaps foremost the scientists, to just chill out about stem cells. I mean, not chill out in their efforts. They should work, but they're not a miracle cure, and I think that maybe the impression in the public is that they are. We all know stem cells are awesome. The scientists, they're miracles for us. They allow us to recapitulate human development and to look, get an insight into, you know, black boxes that we, we couldn't penetrate before. But, you know, let's be honest. All the treatments that people claim out there, very, very, very vanishingly small percentage of them have actually reached the clinic. And in fact, the, the one that's the most widely used is one that's been in play for almost 50 years, and that's bone marrow transplant. Mm. So really, the truth is the, the vast majority of the stem cell treatments that people talk about aren't ready for prime time. They're still treating mice. Yeah, we're curing a lot of mice. And, you know, we, we throw all kinds of claims out there. Cure baldness, we're going to restore eyesight, you're going to, you know, your creaky joints are going to be better. All these athletes are going after it. Kobe Bryant, Peyton Manning have reportedly undergone these stem cell treatments. And, you know, it, it's no wonder that you look around in the media or you look around in the marketplace, in fact, mostly in, in other countries, but also in the U.S., you have this kind of stem cell tourism where people are going to wherever outside the country and getting bone marrow aspirates or their fat drawn out and cells taken out and isolated and then put back into their injuries or to treat some whatever disease. And really the mechanism is totally opaque and, and the efficacy is really not there in any 
demonstrable way for most of these therapies. So I think it's, it's, it's almost dangerous. So Tim Caulfield says he's the, holds a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta. He's an author of this new report. He says, over the last 10 to 12 years, it's become a cultural phenomenon. And their efficacy, this is stem cells he's talking about, is almost taken for granted. But while enthusiasm and optimistic speculation can be positive for research because it, you know, draws funding and it gets good media attention so that there's interest, when you go too far with the hype, you're on the, on the boundaries of misleading the public and misinforming policy debates, which are really there to govern whether or not these therapies are going to be put into play, into clinical trial. And that really devalues the methodical approach to research that has been the foundation of all therapeutic advances, you know, in the history of medicine. So, or worse, driving premature use like gene therapy and that UPenn case, which was tragic and set the field back probably decades. Yeah. So it's a real issue. And, and Caulfield, he argues uh, it's not really just the, the media to blame. There's this hype pipeline, uh, to quote him that puts more and more spin on each story as it moves up the ladder. And, and it really starts with the researchers because we're ultimately figuring, you know, we're in a new era, I guess, with all the media attention that we're selling our research right out of the gate. We think of a question and part of what guides are thinking of a question to ask in science is what's going to draw funding, what's going to draw media attention, and all those things are related. And I think that's a departure from historically when science was really governed by what was an interesting question with a real impact. And a new set of guidelines, which uh, are meant to address this overly positive portrayal of science, are stem cells in the media. The International Society for Stem Cell Research puts some of the burden to kind of revise and correct the picture of stem cells in their application, it puts the burden of that on the science themselves, at least partly. According to the science article, it urges them to work for accurate and balanced reporting and to collaborate with the people that convey this information to the public so that it's a balanced portrayal. And it's not just focused on what might happen, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, vis-a-vis making a human from scratch, as we talked about earlier in the roundup. And, you know, we should also avoid talking about the economic impact and the developmental horizons. We should just focus on what we know, which is the science, answering the question and doing it in a careful and, I guess, forthright way. So, you know, instead of the what people always say, oh, how long do you think this will be in therapy? I think, I mean, what I most of the time hear, five to ten oh years. Oh, my gosh, five you don't know how years. many times I have heard that. Yeah. It doesn't even mean anything anymore. I mean, that's that's like cancer treatments have been five to ten years on the outlook. You know, that everything is five to ten years every time. Uh, it doesn't even make sense anymore. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start saying, I'm just going to say 230 years. Is what I'm gonna say. <laughs> Next time someone asks me that there, I'm going to say, uh, you're going to die before it comes, my friend. Don't even think yeah. about it. Probably not within your lifetime. Probably never. But. Maybe that's what I'll say. Ah, probably never. Just an idea. We're just messing around. Yeah, but this, this is something that I've uh, come across very often, and I don't think it's a problem that is specific to stem cells. I think it is a problem that is specific to science, and I think the reasons that you mentioned are probably across the board 
scientists need to find that exciting angle to be able to get people excited about it, to get funding, to, you know, it's kind of the way that people are taught to approach their science these days, as opposed to just thinking of a, hey, this is a research question. Isn't research interesting on its own? You have to come up with the, what's the therapeutic angle? What is the end goal? What is the exciting development that'll come? You know, there was uh, somebody years ago, probably five, almost 10 years ago, who I was reporting on for a chemistry type thing that was going, it was a new chemical catalyst that was going to help with hydrogen power and that it was going to be coming in just a couple of years. And I haven't heard anything about that in a while. And it's, it's past that timeline and there's still nothing there, you know. It has been five to 10 years after all. And where is it? Where is where it? Where is it? Yeah. I'll tell you, it's still in that dude's brain. He's just still kicking it around in there trying to sell it. It's the selling. And I think it's that conversation between the scientist and then the communications officers who sell the story to the media that there needs to be a bit more honesty there, maybe. Yeah, it's a challenge. To be honest, I don't know how you're going to fix it, because I think while that's all well and good, the fundamental problem is there's not enough money and there's too many scientists. You know what I mean? And they all want to keep their job. They all want to get promoted. They all want to get their grants. So. Yeah. When it comes to something like, you know, maybe a new solar panel or a new energy production method, okay, hype it. Who's going to get hurt by it? But when it, you're talking about stem cell therapies where people yeah. are leaving the country to try unproven medical therapies that could Crazy. really be detrimental. Yeah. People so could get crazy. hurt. It's the, you know, the risk yeah. that you're going to be putting into the public place that you need to be thinking about. For sure. Yeah. All right. So yeah, stem cells in a, of a different sort now we can get into. And this is something that I actually, this is where I, I feel like we can hype the heck out of this. <laughs> this is a, a newly discovered stem cell signaling pathway that could boost yields of corn and other staple crops by up to 50% in, again, catch it, in the very near term. That's a quote. I'm guessing that means five to 10 years. <laughs> Probably. This is a paper published in Nature Genetics. In essence, just to bottom line it, there's like a mechanism that's pretty well described in plants. It's like a feedback mechanism where you have this stem cell core. They call it the, the meristem. There's this like clutch of, of stem cells that can become all the different cells of the plant. And from that core, there's regulatory signals. That core will speak to its near neighbors directly surrounding it and kind of tell them what to do. Tell them either to differentiate or not or proliferate. So there's this like kind of intercellular communication from the stem cells to their neighbors. And this has been noted, but the real innovation in, in this study is that they found that this is not only a local phenomenon, but there are signals derived from this stem cell core that can actually communicate with the very distal portions of the plant, you know, the leaves, the fruits, all the elements that like are... The shoots. Yeah, the stuff we think about when we think of plant. We're not thinking about yeah. the meristem. We're thinking about leaves and all that stuff. So the business end, I guess you could call the plants, is communicating back with the, the stem cell core. As the paper explains, this stem cell niche, it can tell these distant types plant elements to stop growing effectively. And this is probably in response to environmental cues. There's, it's dry. There's not a lot of water. There's not a lot of sunshine. And it's kind of a regulatory mechanism. Don't spend your energy on growing. And effectively, what this research group has shown is they've identified a novel, this novel signaling mechanism where 
the communication similar to the, the local one at the core with the near neighbors. It's a similar phenomenon using some of the same receptors or some of the same signaling elements, but this is a distant one. And the uh, researchers were able to identify an actual receptor within those business end of the plants that corresponds with a secreted protein. They pretty much drawn the link between and within this signaling mechanism. And to add to that, they were able to make plants that where these, this signaling mechanism was mildly impaired. So just a little bit of that don't grow signal, that arrest, that growth arrest signal is kind of minimized. And this led to a 50% increase in the yield of the actual, the fruit of the plant, the corn in this case. It's not a fruit. I'm not an idiot, but um, it's more of a, a, a metaphor. But the idea is that you could apply this more broadly by kind of short-circuiting this feedback loop to make plants, bioengineered plants, or maybe manipulate it in, in non-bioengineered plants to get higher crop yields. And, you know, the downside of this is not really discussed, but there may be. But in the near term, I think, are the most immediate application of this is more food, which in parts of the developing world is a really, really important achievement. Yeah. So if we can have the same area of land growing more food, that's something that could be have a major impact. Yes. I mean, the big question there, like the downside is, you know, what does this mean for nutrients in the soil and what we're going to have to do for fertilizers and that kind of stuff? Because if you are increasing growth, you are increasing energy use and nutrient use. So I think you're decreasing flavor. Have you ever had those Possibly. humongous strawberries or like a, like a size of a fist? But maybe it's not a humongous strawberry. Maybe it's growing, you know. More strawberries. More strawberries. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. Maybe so. that's the difference. Of course, those yeah. tomatoes. Have you ever heard those tomatoes that they have no flavor? I know, but now there are also researchers working on flavor genes. So they just put them together. Bang. 50% more fruit and more flavor. Engineer them <laughs> out the wazoo. Yeah. Well, we're moving on to the Zika. Here we go. World War Zika. I got a couple <laughs> of stories in the roundup now about Zika because, quite honestly, stories about Zika are ubiquitous. There's a little bit of lag. It became big news. There's a little bit of lag. The scientists rushed to the problem, and a series of papers of you know varying degrees of impact have come out addressing Zika. The first one I'm going to talk about, you know, we just had uh, Kriegstein on the program last week, and that was really enlightening about some of the mm -hmm. what's going on with Zika and why there's such a disconnect between Zika, which has been in place since the 50s, really, why there's a disconnect between that historic Zika and the, this modern day Zika and this rash of microcephaly and why we haven't seen it before. So this first paper, it looked at that. And really, I, I think the important point is that Historically, Zika, as I said, was around this African Zika strain, which has recently been used in some of these studies because that's what they had in, in Dr. Kriegstein's study. In fact, that's the virus they had on hand. And it's been shown, actually, no, not Dr. Kriegstein, but a, a previous paper had you used these ancestral type of Zika virus strains. I'm sorry. And although those have been shown to infect the cultured human neural precursor cells that are the forerunners of the brain development in the fetus, I'm using a stem cell system. It wasn't thought to cause microcephaly, that ancestral strain. In this paper, they actually use this modern strain, this contemporary strain that has been behind all this rash of microcephalus. And they show that they can infect, they use mice, and they show that they can infect the NPCs, these neural precursor cells in vivo, and affect 
brain development. And they showed also, you know, dotting all their eyes, so that they directly targeted multiple neuronal lineages, that they cause the cells to arrest growth, they cause them to die, in fact, they cause them to inhibit differentiation, so the cortical layers were thin, and ultimately this manifested as a microcephalic phenotype. And I think the real takeaway for me from this is that they did this all in mice. And having a mouse model now where we can really look in context at the mechanism behind this disease and its ultimate manifestation of microcephalus, I think is going to be the beginning of putting a dent in the, the phenotype and maybe trying to address the disease in human patients. Right, because with other viruses like the Ebola virus, we've done some like on the floor, ground running, like, oh my gosh, we're going to study the people who have it right now and we're, this is just ongoing research. But we can do that, but it's much better to have a lab model and not to have to like work out in the field on human subjects and have everything that's involved in that. But then there are other lab models that are coming up as well, aren't there? Like the, uh, the mini brains, the organoids? Yes. Segway. So this second story is in a human stem cell model. So using pluripotent stem cells. I love these, these new models. They're doing 3D. I've always thought that, you know, you look at your stem cells in a dish. I always get people in the lab. I say, these are stem cells. And they look at them and they're totally unimpressed. It's the biggest yawn you've ever seen. <laughs> Why? Because it's just, it doesn't look like anything. So I, I think, I mean, the point being that, you know, life happens in three dimensions and it's not in a culture dish. And I think the appreciation that is really advancing the science. So to that point, these researchers have, they've used these organoids. They take these cerebral organoids, they call them, and uh, they're made from human pluripotent stem cell derived neural progenitors. And they used these organoids to recapitulate the early stage, first trimester fetal brain development. And that's when Zika really does the damage. They showed that this, right. again, I mean, there's a differential between which strain they use. But this is kind of the first way we looked at the contemporary virus, showed there was a phenotype in my setup, this model. In this study, they used the old school virus, the African Zika virus has been around for 65 years. But they're looking at a different thing. They were looking at the mechanism of how the virus has its effect. And in this case, they used the ancestral Zika virus. They showed with these cerebral organoids that they, were, they could infect the cerebral organoids and that they had a phenotype that would reduce organoid size. And that reduction correlated with how much virus was there. So it looked like a direct relationship between viral infection and the phenotypic manifestations of Zika virus, you know, microcephaly. And I think more than that, they show that there's this innate immune receptor it's called toll-like receptor TLR3. That was upregulated after Zika infection of these organoids. So again, they're looking at these, the mechanism here and showing kind of what the pathway is. How does the virus have its effect? So in this case, it looked like infection with the Zika virus caused upregulation of the TLR3, which cause the phenotypic effects of the Zika virus infection. And looking at like the pathway, what the downstream effectors are, they showed that there were 41 genes that were related to neural development that were upregulated downstream or affected downstream of the TLR3 activation. Uh, suggesting like, and these are neuronal genes again, suggesting that there's a real connection between the Zika virus, this TLR3 receptor, and the disrupted neurogenesis or adversely affecting all these neural genes. So yeah. together, putting together all these pieces, they have a kind of an idea that TLR3 is a part of the mechanism of 
manifesting in the phenotype microcephaly. And combine that with Dr. Kriegstein's study they told us about last week, looking at the viral entry receptor. Combining that with the study I just told you about, with we could have a mouse animal model where the phenotypic manifestations are presented in context, I think we're really make not we, but they, these guys are doing tremendous work. They're really making a dent. And it's really impressive because, you know, didn't Zika just happen like three months ago? I mean, it's amazing. Fast progress. You know, it happened for the public's awareness very recently, but this is a disease that's been on, you know, a disease of interest for a very long time. But, it, you know, the lab focus on it has been upregulated as well. For, I mean, it needs to be. Rio, I don't know how they're going to yeah. do these Olympics. It's going to be between their political oh, sis- situation and the Zika. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in charge of that. They're just going to be handing out free mosquito <laughs> repellent. <laughs> Welcome to the Olympics. Here's your repellent. Yeah, well, you know, it's famously Brazil. They, I think they just had the World Cup and during Carnival, they love to hand out uh, condoms because, you know, Brazilians, they love life and all the associated pleasures of life, as do many people, not just Brazilians. But they're going to have to add off to that. They're going to be handing out condoms. They're going to be handing out off. <laughs> right. It's going to be a lot of handouts, yeah. a nice little swag bag to keep you alive. Oh, my God. So... Let's move on. The last story I have for you, and this is interesting too. I love when, you know, there's kind of a paradigm shift in the way we look at things. We've had a million in science, you know, it happens pretty regularly of varying importance. But this one I think is really important. It it relates to what I was talking about. Life happens in 3D. You know, when we think of cells, it's easy to say, oh, well, cells in a dish aren't like cells in the body. I think people can picture that. But what people may not recognize, or many people, lay people in particular, may not recognize is that the genome, everyone thinks of the genome as a list, you know, of of genes or a string of letters. But really, the genome in situ, in the cell, in the chromosomes is actually, you know, not just in terms of the chromosomes where it's all bound out, but the chromatin is actually very much three-dimensional. It breathes, the strands breathe, of course, and they, they flex the, two, the double helix is, is in motion. It's not static. But also, there's a 3D architecture to the genome, yeah. a way that the genome within chromosomes and chromatin, it's arranged topologically. Yep. It's not just like by accident. It's really important. And what this group showed is that one, one of the reasons why induced pluripotent stem cells don't always differentiate back or correctly differentiate back into adult cells or as efficiently is because when you revert these cells from the terminally differentiated cells, say skin or neural cells in this case, when you revert them back, you don't really capture that 3D genome architecture that's present in a true embryonic stem cell. A lot of people, you know, were pursuing the same idea in terms of epigenetic signature, that there's a, there's a signature of the skin that carries over even when you reprogram into these induced pluripotent stem cells. So they're pluripotent, but they kind of want to go back to skin or blood or whatever the cell of origin was. And I think these researchers, this is from the University of Pennsylvania, have shown that this is also at play in terms of the 3D architecture of the genome and that the folding of that genome, that 3D architecture is really important for correct gene expression. And it kind of makes sense because 
the way the gene gets expressed is that something settles on top of it and it drives gene expression. You know, the RNA polymerase will come down there, it'll recognize a locus and it'll start firing off the transcript that's ultimately going to become the protein that has the effect in the genome. But what is that thing settling down on? It's not settling down on a string. It's settling down on some kind of topology. And if you don't have the right topology, you're not going to have the right mechanistic processes that drive faithful differentiation. So, Right. Well, when you think of it in terms of folding, things are folded together and they're not available for transcription. They're not available for copying the things that are necessary, the instructions that are necessary for differentiation. And so where a certain type of folding might have some instructions available and on the outside of the structure, uh, the wrong folding is going to put important things maybe into the internal parts of the structure. So that right. changes the availability of important parts of the genome. Exactly. In this case, they were focused on iPS cells derived from neural cells, and they showed that these, the iPS cells derived from neural cells had a 3D topology that actually looked more like neural than it looked like the embryonic stem cell correlate that it should have been. So yeah, like you said, the recognition sites aren't placed correctly, and that leads to altered or aberrant transcription. And, you know, when you're talking about a multipotent or pluripotent stem cell, there's a million ways that that cell could go. If it doesn't have the right topology, I'm sure it's going to get derailed along the way. Well, you know, there are not a million ways that this show is going to go because we are done with the roundup. And everyone, remember, we're going to get into the guest interview very soon. Remember that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. So let's get into the interview segment. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants us to let you all know about a product called BrainFizz Neuronal Medium. BrainFizz is a new basal medium based on the published formulation by Cedric Barty and Fred Gage for the culture of primary and pluripotent stem cell-derived neurons. In BrainFizz Neuronal Medium, neuronal cultures experience brain-like physiological conditions and develop a higher proportion of synaptically active neurons. To get a free sample of BrainFizz Neuronal Medium, go to stemcell.com slash trybrainfizz, spelled P-H-Y-S. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Sushan Zhang. Zhang presently is Professor of Anatomy and Neurology and a research group leader at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His laboratory aims to answer how functionally diversified neuronal and glial subtypes are born in the making of our human brain. They have developed models of neural differentiation from mouse, monkey, and human embryonic stem cells that recapitulate key events occurring during early embryo development, including induction of multipotential neuroepithelial cells that form neural tube-like structures, patterning of region-specific neural progenitors, and generation of neurons and glia with particular transmitter or functional phenotypes. The specialized neural cells produced from normal human ESCs in Zhang's laboratory are being tested for their therapeutic potential in animal models of neurological diseases such as Parkinson's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, spinal cord injury, and multiple sclerosis. Their long-term goal is to translate this technology into rebuilding injured or diseased brains. Dr. Zhang, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you on the show. You are doing such interesting work in your laboratory, but why don't we give the audience a little context for the focus of your lab's work? Mm -hmm. 
how did you decide to focus on this line of research and why the damaged brain? What drives you to keep working on it? I'm coming from the medical background. I graduated from medical school. And so my research has been always focusing on something that someday can be used in patients to benefit patients. And so that is why most of my research intend for that direction. And can you tell us a little bit about the particular areas of your research? You know, that was mentioned that we've got Parkinson's, ALS, multiple sclerosis, yeah, any one of those, Dr. Zhang, would be a full research program. You, yeah. You're not, you, yeah. you sleep? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, scientists usually do not sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so my lab mostly use uh, human stem cell for the neural aspects uh, of uh, research. And so we use the stem cells for a number of purposes, the first one is to use human stem cells in model system to understand how our brain develops in the first place. The second part is to understand how the nerve cells go along when we use uh, the stem cells from patients or when we use the stem cells that are genetically modified, very much like uh, transgenic uh, animals, and we use transgenic uh, stem cells. And the third part is to, again, use uh, stem cells as a source so that we can generate the cells for potential therapeutic application. I think you mentioned uh, for spinal cord injury or Parkinson's disease, for example. If we can generate the specific cell types that are lost in those diseases or injuries, we can potentially use these cells as a source for cell therapy. So in general, these three areas. So Dr. Zhang, that's a great uh, intro to to the work that was just recently published, because I guess the real question is, especially with something that's so nuanced as the brain and complicated Uh in terms of signaling organization, et cetera, how do you precisely deliver cells and how do you introduce a therapeutic intervention that's so focused and so, you know, refined that it does exactly what you want without having off-target effects? Because Kiki and I talked about this. We discussed your paper in our roundup last week, and we know that historically one of the major issues was that sometimes you put cells into the brain of even human patients, this has happened, right? And, and it has some really unsettling and undesirable off-target effects. So maybe this is a good opportunity to tell us how you, in your work, has addressed Uh that major problem. I think you raise a very good point. So our brain is actually precisely wired up by a very specialized uh, nerve cells, so to speak. And as a matter of fact, uh, other parts of the body also is uh, is built uh, in a similar manner but brain is uh, particularly so. So, for example, in the Parkinson's disease, the neurons, the nerve cells that are lost, mostly are localized into a small place called the midbrain, in particular, substantial nigra. And those neurons produce dopamine as a transport, the signaling molecules. 
and these uh, signaling molecules uh, talk to their target cell in the basal ganglia or striatum, and so that they form a very specific uh, connection. And so in order for us to replace the lost cells and at the same time rebuild the circuit, and you need a number of considerations. First, you need to produce the right type of cells that are lost in Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And second, you need to put into the right place. Third, you need to have this connect to the target. And finally, they need to talk in the right language mm. because the communication needs to be regulated mm-hmm. because they are controlling our movement. Mm. And I think of, and we have to take care of all these steps. And that is why at the, we spend actually many years to figure out how to get produce the right type of cells. Essentially, we take uh, human stem cells and guide them step by step toward the dopamine neurons that are resembling those in the midbrain. That is the first step. That in itself is quite a feat. I mean, I know it's been, many researchers have been working on that for yeah. many years, but to get all the chemical signals to actually say, you, stem cell, are going to be a dopamine-producing neuron that is from very specific. Very specific. It's not just dopamine-producing neurons. Yeah. Because there are many different kinds of dopamine-producing neurons in our body in many different parts of our brain, in retina, in elsewhere. Right. What we need is the type of dopamine neurons that are making connection with the striated GABAergic neurons. And that is really, that has been taking a lot of time, almost a decade, by many labs. And only a few years ago, five, six, quite a few labs simultaneously identify a way to guide this stem cell to the right type of dopamine neurons that resemble the midbrain dopamine neurons that are lost in Parkinson's disease. And I think uh, that part has been now well established. Now, for therapeutic application, I think uh, you already raised uh, that we need a precise connection when you transplant the cells into the brain. Now, what if they do not uh, talk to each other in the language that we normally have? See, if the cells do not uh, behave like what they should be doing, or if the cells are doing something completely unexpected. So what are we going to deal with? And that is really where the research project that we published, you know, coming from the idea, coming from how to regulate the activity of the dopamine neurons. And we thought uh, we can build in a switch, just like what we have at home. (laughs) And that, of course, is a cool idea, but uh, it comes down to the specifics, you know, what kind of switch we want to build. You know, there are many different kinds of switch actually already out there in the scientific field. For example, we can use uh, the light-sensitive switch, like channel adopsin, halo adopsin, for example, mm-hmm. which has been 
in the field for quite a while. And we also use it for in our lab for different purposes. But then you're talking about neurons that are in the midbrain. Yeah. And so controlling those with light, it's a little more complicated. A little bit trickier because the midbrain is the place is small. Even in other parts of the brain, also a little bit tricky because you need to put in light source yeah. in the brain in the first place. At this moment, we, we still do not have a remote control for delivering light inside of the brain at this moment. No. So we still need to put the light the source into it. The second part is that uh, even when we have a light source inside the brain, the light uh, does not uh, distribute too far and uh, only maybe a couple of uh, micrometers and uh, it, it does not go too far. And, so, and also the cells we transplanted are alive. They can move around. And so the light source cannot choose them. <laughs> and so you cannot really... Uh, regulate all the transplanted cells. And yeah, so if I is, were one of those cells, I would I would be running away. I don't <laughs> want to be sitting in some light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it's a little bit harder, right? And so we need to come up with something else that can regulate all the cells, just in case they do something weird. And just like you, you know, you run away, we cannot catch you. And we have to do something that you cannot escape. And so the chemical approach can do this kind of job. So can you give us a brief description of that chemical approach? We talked about it last week, but for the audience, tell them exactly what. Yeah. And I love the name, too. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> so the DREAD uh, designer... Is, DREAD stands for... What, yeah. Oh, you're going to tell us. Yeah, DREAD it is. Yeah, designer receptor exclusively activated by designer drugs. And so this was uh, studied by actually a famous scientist in uh, North Carolina, Brian Ross. And he developed this uh, kind of receptors, engineered receptors. You can genetically engineer these receptors so that these receptors can only respond to a designer drug. And the designer drug can only act on this engineered receptor but not on any other similar receptors in our body. So you're making it very location-specific. You have these cells with these certain receptors, and you stick them in a specific location. Not just the location. Anywhere in the body, the drug can only act on the anywhere the cells have that particular receptor. Yeah. So meaning it does not close react with any other similar receptors we already have in our body. So this way you can avoid some of the so-called off-target or side effects. Mm. That is one of the beauties, you know. And uh, besides uh, what uh, you just mentioned, that uh, you can escape away. You cannot escape away because uh, the drug goes to the blood system and circulate throughout the body, even in the, inside the brain. And so we will catch it. It even uh, traverses the, the blood-brain barrier, huh? Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, the, the drug is that uh, you can traverse the uh, blood-brain barrier, get inside the brain. And so, so there's that, no escape. These cells are going <laughs> to get it. You're going to be turned on or turned off. <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, it's not completely turned on or off. You can actually 
turn up or down or on and off depending on the dose of the drug. Wow. That's、so、another beauty of it. Yeah. So if you need just a little bit more, you can basically turn up the volume. That is exactly what we want because let's see, let's go back to Parkinson's disease as an example. If the cells we transplanted do not do the job up to the standard, you know, say move us around, we can beat them a little bit, <laughs> let them do a little bit more, and so give them a little bit stimulus, but、uh, not too much. Because if you give too much, then it will make, get too excited. And so, on the contrary, if the cells do something too much and、uh, get us move too much without control, we have to tune it down.、Mm. Or in the extreme cases, when the cells somehow talk to strangers, not to their expected target, then in that case, we have to turn it off. Not just turn it down, and so I think that、uh, kind of switch、uh, really allows us to do a number of things. Just like、uh, the switch in our home, you know, we can turn up、like、a dimmer. Yeah, it's a dimmer switch, right? It's not just on or off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Kiki and I were having a laugh, wondering how long it's going to be before you start putting this into the brains of your graduate students, so you can. Affect their motivation pathway. Maybe turn them up. Super high dopamine, very high reward. They'll be in the lab all night. Wow, that is what we were discussing in our lab meetings. <laughs> Because the dopamine neurons we now put into the brain is specifically relating to locomotion.、Mm. There is another kind of dopamine neuron you just mentioned that is related to rewarding, addiction, all sorts of、uh, things. And we are also building this type of、uh, neuron, trying to guide the stem cell to this type of dopamine neurons, and then try to do something to see. Maybe not the graduate student or postdoc, but at this moment, probably still mice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Are we talking though about like treating addiction? Maybe that's what I meant. Because、uh, I we already discussed from the beginning that、uh, the brain is precisely wired up, and、uh, you have to use a very specialized、uh, subclasses of.、Uh, Neurons, not just dopamine neurons. You know there are many different kinds of dopamine neurons. The dopamine neurons we talk about in Parkinson's disease are related to motor function, but the dopamine neuron you just talk about to motivate my graduate student and postdocs are related to rewarding and other type of things, and these are generally in a different manner under different conditions,、mm. and, and, and we are getting quite close to that, and we can also use this type. The same kind of strategy to make the mice not graduate student yet make the mice <laughs> <laughs> work harder or eat more or sleep less or whatever. Yeah, and I think、right. that type of、uh, things. So behavioral modification is what we're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm thinking zombies, Doctor no, Zhang. No, it's not zombies. It's just it's remote control. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's a remote. We call it remote control, but I think.、Uh, Through this type of remote control, we can learn 
a lot of principles how our brain functions. So it's not solely for therapeutics, but I think we can learn a lot by using this kind of model system. Absolutely. Gain insight. Yeah. We, we know that Parkinson's patients who take L-DOPA, that very often there are issues with gambling and other motivation-related. It's the motivation-related off-target effects because L-DOPA is not as specific as something like this. And so we learned a little bit with the L-DOPA, and now this is going to teach us that much more about how these individual neuron types work and the control factors that are involved. Uh Because L-DOPA also goes through the dopamine in our brain. And uh, we already touched upon this issue because uh, dopamine in the brain works in many different uh, ways uh, depending on the circuit through which the dopamine is uh, utilized. And so that's why in this patient, when they took uh, L-DOPA, they have this kind of side effect, meaning that the dopamine is utilized in uh, another set of circuits. And the similar thing we can learn in the in our model system described in the paper and uh, to understand how this system works and can tune that system to avoid this type of uh, side effects, for example. And so this is working. Your model system is working yeah. very well in mice. But mm-hmm. um, what's the next step for you? I mean, it's a long road before this is ever going to be even touching humans. But what's the next step for your lab? It's a long road, yes, because uh, the stem cell therapy for patients has not yet in clinic, let alone you are going to genetically modify the cells, right? Mm. Right. And then you've got a designer drug on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I think these kind of things can always be optimized. Because the cell therapy, stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease, for example, is moving ahead toward the clinical trial. Genetic modification, particularly using the current technology, actually is reasonably safe. Of course, it still requires regulatory oversight. Mm. And with this kind of optimization, I, I don't see why it cannot be used in patients. And so what we are trying to do is we are now actually testing a similar thing in non-human primates. Wow. Because... Yeah, you guys have an amazing primate center there, don't you? Indeed, indeed. So I have been, you know, at the beginning we talked about, you know, I'm always trying to move my research toward the utility in patients. Yeah. And that is why I've been working with uh, the technology, trying to optimize it and then test it in a preclinical setting before we can move on to patients. These are primates that have lesions that model Parkinson's, or you're just looking at just in steady state at this point? Those uh, primates have Parkinson's disease uh, after they take up uh, some chemicals, uh, very much like what we see in patient populations. You know, the wing of the toxin that leads to Parkinson's disease in patients, I think many years back in LA, and we learned from these patients. And so we use 
this incident to create uh, a Parkinson's model. And so the primate uh, model of Parkinson's disease resembles closely the real Parkinson's patients. Mm. And so we use this model to test the efficacy of drugs or cells or genes, and it almost become a standard for clinical testing. And so we are using this model for preclinical setting. It's a good model. Do you think that the approach that you're using, this uh, the DREAD approach with the genetically modified stem cells, can be applied to different disorders or that it will be useful in different disorders beyond Parkinson's? Yeah, that is our initial intention. We use Parkinson's disease simply as a proof-of-principle model system. And the reality is that that the cells can be regulated quite precisely. And so whether it's dopamine neuron or GABA neuron or glutamate neuron or even heart cells or or, or pancreate uh, beta cells. And so we, we have, at least in culture, we have tested uh, a number of cell types. We tested uh, dopamine neuron, glutamate neuron, GABA neuron, serotonin neurons, all these type of neurons. You can always regulate this kind of activity very precisely. And so that is why we ship the cell to many groups. So long they want the cell, we just ship the cells. Wow. And so we ship the cells to people working on Epilepsy, for example, so whether we can control the epileptic episode. So we collaborated with people working on cardiac muscle cells and to see whether we can regulate the beat, heart beating. And you can actually see precise <laughs> heart beating <laughs> regulation by regulating up and down, you know. And wow. uh, we calling people working on diabetes to see whether we can regulate the you know, insulin secretion from these yeah. beta cells. And I think uh, your question really raises a good point that uh, we simply try to show approval principle. But the key point that uh, we hope someday we can use this type of approach to really regulate or, or refine the therapeutic outcome because uh, we already discussed that our body is so precisely engineered, so to speak, you know, and we... If we put something in just bluntly, we cannot expect uh, everything to be perfect and we have to be prepared for something. And I think this type of approach could be very useful. Yeah, and it seems like with the kind of dimmer switch approach of being able to take certain drugs, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of something like uh, with, with Parkinson's or even with your insulin for diabetes. Yeah. If somebody with diabetes feels like they've got, you know, low blood sugar or whatever, they can change the dose to specifically moderate how they feel. And so it can be something that somebody can manage on their own without having to worry about going to the doctor every single time. Yeah, I think that's uh, something we hope. And uh, my personal and I discussed this uh, many times. And uh, he even generated uh, beta cell by himself in our neural lab, you know. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> because we would like somebody, but we still would like to have some expert lab to do this type of job. Dr. And, Zhang, I got to stop you right there. You're already yeah. working on ALS. You're working on MS. <laughs> you're working on Parkinson's. Please, you're going to die if you start doing diabetes now. No, you no, need no. some rest. <laughs> 
but I'm not going to work on it anymore because I. That's why we try to ship the sales uh, to somebody else to work, and we actually deposit the sales lines in the YCL Institute to distribute sales to anybody who wants to use the sales, just to test uh, whether the system will work in their model, in their system, and so on and so forth. And I would love to see, you know, this kind of principle can be utilized. And uh, even though for practical use, we don't know whether the insulin can be precisely controlled because it requires some work. And the current system may not be that uh, perfect, but I think uh, it's just a proof of principle. And I think, uh, as I put it earlier, you know, we can optimize the designer receptor and then designer drug, all sorts of things. Uh, by that time, when it's ready, I think it could be something for, indeed, for application in patients. This is all so fascinating. I'm just, I, I'm amazed at the work you're doing. And it really does seem like it's, uh, you know, still a few years off, but it really does seem like it will have application. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed. I would like to see this to happen before I retire or before <laughs> I see something else. <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. This has just been, I'm sure this interview is going to leave a lot of people interested in thinking about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And hopefully people will take advantage of the cell lines that you've made available. I really hope that this cell line can be useful for a number of applications. I'm sure they've already had a lot of, a lot of requests, I'm sure. Yeah, I got some requests and I shipped some sales already. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Any more questions, Dalen? No, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm in awe right now. I'm totally flabbergasted. I'm picturing how I can use this to my own ends, but uh, yeah. it's going to take a lot of deep insight because a million things are springing to mind. I could think of a lot of things I could do, but it's a matter of choosing the best one and the, the lowest hanging fruit for me. And I'm sure a lot of other researchers are thinking the same thing. This is really tremendous work, Dr. Zhang. Congratulations. Thank you very much. All right. What a great interview. I love Dr. Zhang. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's a funny guy. He works a little bit too hard, I'll say. But you know what? I'm into it because God knows what I'm going to come down with in my older, you know, near old age. So right. I need guys like him taking care of me, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, our population here in the U.S. and not just the U.S., there are, it's, it's an aging population. And so there are going to be a lot of disorders popping up in more, a greater and greater percentage of the population, like Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis and other diseases of the nervous system. So anyone who is taking a thoughtful stance on how we can address these things and I don't know. His work seems very promising. But like we were talking about earlier. Five to five ten, to ten years. years. Yeah, but he's not. You know what? I'll say he about never the said that. He's not a guy. I wasn't going to set him up and say how long, but I doubt he would say it. Did you hear him? He said, hopefully he's a guy who's who's just focused on the problem. And it doesn't I don't think it's going to be long before we see the follow up for this. He's already working in the monkeys. He's working on eight or nine other diseases. I think that he's got a system that's got a lot of uh, potential to address a lot of different problems. And I, I think know. he's just focused on the next question. These are the scientists I love. Always working on the next question. I mean, I was amazed to hear that he was always in 
non-human primates. I'm like, what? You're already doing this? This is amazing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's close this show, shall we? It's time for our rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Today, because I was just booking some air travel, not for vacation, unfortunately, I got so upset about the fees. I mean, don't you find it kind of absurd what airlines are charging you now for? I mean, I get it with the checked bags. That was like a little, they floated that a few years ago. And it was like, all right, you're going to find, you're going to make me pay to check my bag. I can live with that. I'll I'll travel with my carry-on. But looking into the statistics, it's kind of egregious. Between 2009 and 2014, Three airlines increased their check bag fees by 67%, okay? And whatever, that's just a number. But if you look at how much revenue is coming from this, back when they started this bag fees thing, the checking fees, they made like about $500 million. It's 2007. Just now, 2014, it's up to $3.5 billion. Add to that Ooh. the cancellation fees that they had now. They keep on increasing the price of these cancellation fees. So... That increased from in 2007, it was about 900 million. Now it's 3 billion. And it makes me sick because I think that at the time it was compensating for the high price of oil and airlines were kind of losing money. But now they have no excuse. Oil, rock bottom prices, record profits for these airlines. They're all consolidating and yet they're increasing the baggage check fees. I think it's just greedy, Kiki. It's not just the baggage check fees. I mean, if you go through the process, they're like, oh, and you can pay this extra fee if you want to have priority boarding, but you're still not first class and they're still going to board in front of you. And (laughs) yeah. And what are you really getting for that? I don't know. A bag of peanuts. You got to pay to have some some snacks. Oh, and then there are flights that, you know, they don't even give you peanuts. You're paying for the priority uh, boarding. You're paying for just some airlines are starting to have the carry on bags become the overhead compartment bags be charged a fee so that fee for their fee for the bags just generally going on the plane and then no peanuts no peanuts come on give me my peanuts or a bag of pretzels (laughs) also by the way you know what they're doing give me something salty (laughs) they're adding seats they're decreasing the row your leg room they're decreasing that and if you want to get what used to be a totally normal, reasonable size seat, you got to pay some kind of extra money. So I don't get it. Everything's getting more expensive for us. While everything's getting cheaper for them, I'm upset. I'm upset, Kiki, and you're not going to put a positive spin on this. No. Do you have anything positive to say about this? No, I don't have anything positive to say about this. I get really sad and upset every time I have to book an airline ticket and it's, you know, okay, I'll go for the cheapest ticket with this airline, but oh, it's going to charge me all these other fees. So then I could go, what is, why do I have to do a cost benefit analysis just for buying a ticket? (laughs) I'm taking the bus, Kiki. (laughs) There are some good bus and train lines. That's an option. I don't know. And the Hyperloop is going to start its testing this year. So, Uh, you know. Hyperloop. Five to 10 years for the Hyperloop. Five to 10 years. There we go. I don't know. What do you all think about baggage fees out there? All these airline fees. I, there's got to be. I mean, aren't these airlines competing? Shouldn't we? Doesn't seem shouldn't, like it. Shouldn't the consumers be getting the benefit? It's anyway. rigged. 
It is rigged. If anybody has any other rant ideas, send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, this concludes episode 66 of the Stem Cell Podcast. It's great information all the way through. That interview was fantastic. Dr. Zhang was just wonderful, like we said. That's my man. I love Dr. Zhang. I want to be his friend. <laughs> Maybe you will be. <laughs> But be sure, everyone, to tune in for our next episode, and we're going to be talking with Kristen Hope about blood stem cells and, of course, delivering you the latest papers. Dalen, I look forward to next time. I can't wait, Kiki. I'll see you then. 